Sorry about that. Good morning, Providence. Sir. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're with us uh, this morning on this um, second Sunday of Advent that we're observing right now. If I have not had a chance to meet you, I would love to have a chance to meet you. If you have time to stick around after the service, and I'd love to just say hi um, face-to-face if you have time um, to do that. And today we're going to look at this idea of hope by looking at um, this, this song, this prophecy from Zechariah in Luke 1. So let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in to the text. Father, Advent, we know, literally, literally, literally means um, to arrive. And on one hand, we know that you've arrived once, you've come once as, as a baby, and this is what we... Um, celebrate and observe this time of year, but we also know that you're coming again. So we are in a season of waiting as your people, as the church. So I pray that as we kind of feel like maybe sometimes we're caught between these two advents, I pray that as we look at the biblical narrative and we put ourselves in the place of people like Zechariah, people like Mary, the people we we see in the scriptures and how they were dealing with and processing and how the, the, this news of the birth of Jesus was affecting them. I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would um, allow us to see what your scripture says about hope in the lives of the people that it um, speaks of. So help us this morning. Change us. I pray you would change our minds from looking at this text, that you would change our hearts and how we, how we feel and, and our desires. And I pray that you would change how we live when we leave this place as a result of looking at your word this morning. And I pray more than anything that your son is magnified during this time. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. One of my goals during this time of year, every year, is for myself and for others to see what the Bible truly says about Christmas really wrestle with, and, and it, it can become familiar, but every year, this is why we have this season of, of Advent, to remember the things that the Bible speaks of in the coming of God in the form of a human be- being and in the form of a baby. And there's a lot, though, during this time of year that can distract us. Some of you are the type of people who want to go all in with Christmas, right? You love this time of year. But maybe the the danger for you is falling off into the being so busy, running yourself so ragged, being caught up in the kind of some of the commercialization type stuff of Christmas that you forget to slow down and really remember what this season should be about. Then some of you may be the more cynical type on the other end, that you've done this Christmas thing many, many times and it just hasn't delivered on the promises. A lot of the things that our culture says that Christmas brings, maybe you just haven't felt it. Maybe this reminds you of a lot of pain and suffering in your life, and you've grown cynical and cold towards the holiday. And these can both, both sides of these things can be distractions and get in the way of truly seeing what the Bible says about the coming of Jesus in this Advent season. It's also the time of year. Um, where people in commercials buy cars without telling their spouses like complete psychopaths. <laughs> Tis the season. Please do not do this. You'll be, we'll be meeting about marriage counseling if you do this, right? 
Um, we also this season have made the made the uh, great idea, and I, and I and I love this this thing, but we made the decision of getting a puppy. Um, so we have a new addition to the Hager family as of last week, and it's been about 15 years ish since we've been in puppy mode, and I remember that I don't like it. Right? It's not fun. <laughs> So I'm a little cynical right now that we've decided to make this Christmas season about having a puppy in our home. So I need prayer as well. Um, I want to read a quote from Tim Keller. And we read this quote probably um, once every three years here because I think it's so right and it encompasses like how we should feel about Christmas in one particular paragraph. And so this is one of those years we're going to read it. Listen to what Keller says about how we should approach Christmas. Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christmas is instead, things are really this bad, and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that, and he quotes, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And that's what we remember during this season. A light has dawned. And this, this statement and this, this, I, this way of approaching Christmas, the reality, the hopeful reality of the world we live in, I think cuts through like a sharp knife some of the distractions and maybe kind of false hopes and things that come along during this season. So today we're going to look at this idea of hope um, through the prophecy or this song some commentators refer to, to it as uh, from Zechariah. And through looking at the life of Zechariah, we're going to see what true biblical hope looks like in a person, in a real human being, uh, a sinful human being that has discouragement, that is wrestles, wrestles with doubts, and then by the end of our time comes to really have hope in who God is and the good news that God is laying out for him. And this is, we're going to do this by looking at three things, the setting of this song, the origin of the song. And the theme of the song from Zechariah. The setting, the origin, and the theme. So what is the setting? This is an interesting part of the biblical birth narrative, right? Because when we're, when we're going through the birth narrative, especially in Luke, we don't often kind of stop and really zero in on Zechariah's prophecy or Zechariah's song. I know for me, before this year where I was like really studying it, it was kind of the one that I read over really quick. Because it didn't necessarily address the birth of Jesus directly. It does, which we'll see but not on the surface at some point. But we have to, if I'm asking Luke, we have to say, Luke, why, the gospel writer, why did you include this? Why, Luke, did you put this, like, right smack dab in the middle of the birth narrative of our Savior Jesus? And he would have had a really good response for us, which I think we're going to see today. But it does seem out of place. It does seem out of place when we're talking about the narrative and the birth narrative of Jesus. So I want us to slow down today. And look at this song, and I think it's going to just um, deepen our view of what Advent means and the birth of Jesus. The other important part about the setting is, before Luke wrote this, there, was, there were 400 years 
of silence um, that was leading up to this point in time. But the people of God, the, the Israelites, hadn't heard from a prophet, hadn't heard from any kind of mouthpiece of God in over 400 years. And to put that in perspective, that is well over how long our country has actually been a country. 400 years is a long, long time ago in our minds. And that is the same way that we have to see as the Israelites were. The other great thing about Luke, which we'll see, is he's a, he's a, he's a physician. He's a detail guy. He doesn't want to leave out any details as he kind of unpacks his gospel. And we're going to see early on that he's going to give us names of people and rulers and places so that we would actually believe what he's saying. He gives us these historical markers so that we might have evidence that everything we're going to read about actually did happen. And Luke's great that way, but it makes his gospel really long. If you haven't noticed, Luke is by far the longest gospel. This chapter today we're looking at has 80 verses in it. Wish we could go through the whole chapter, but we're going to focus in on and bounce around a little bit to see kind of what this, um, kind of who this person Zechariah is. So look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. This is an important role. He's a priest, right? He's a priest. It says he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So note first that this, this couple, this family, is going through suffering. They're going through pain. They've had to wait a really long time. It says they're up there in years, right? They're old. They haven't had to have kids. She hasn't been able to conceive, and so they've been waiting for a long time for this to happen. They've struggled. And knowing the culture that they were in, being barren for a woman in this time would have been a sign of sin. Like she must have done something really wrong for God to punish her in this way. That was the mindset, even amongst the Jewish people. So you had the internal pain of not having what they truly desire, but they were also marginalized. They were looked down upon for something that they had really had no control over. But yet, it says, they were both righteous before God, and they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Doesn't mean they were perfect, but you would have looked at Zechariah, and you would have looked at Elizabeth and said, these people love God. They were above reproach. You couldn't have found anything like glaring in their lives that would have said they're walking in disobedience to God. And they were doing this in the midst of, I'm sure, anger towards God, doubt, doubting his goodness. This is who we're looking at in this story. And that's the setting. We need to remember that as we get closer to the song that Zechariah writes. Now let's look at the origin of the song in verse 8. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, so his division of priests, Abijah, that division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is a huge deal. So not, not too often was this particular division of priests on duty. That was a big deal. But then out of his division, they drew lots, and his name came up. He kind of won the, the, the lottery there, right, for the lot that his lot was drawn, or his, his lot was, the lot was thrown and his, his name was selected. So this is a significant time in his life. 
This is significant. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime occasion for Zechariah in his profession, being a priest. So in verse 10, it says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. And so he's on the inside now in the temple. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So obviously a part of his priestly duty, he's a mediator between God and the Israelites. He's praying on behalf of the Israelites. That's what he does. But he was also, and we'll see a few verses later, he was praying for um, his wife to conceive. He, he wanted to um, have children just like Elizabeth did. So that was part of his prayer as well. He was going in there. This is the closest he might ever physically get to God. Because remember, this is where the presence of God dwelt at this point in time. He was close to God. He was praying to God that he would that they would be able to have children. And then an angel appears. He does what most people do, and nearly, I think all the people off the top of my head, that when they see an angel in the scriptures, they, they're afraid. He's afraid, it said. Fear overcame him. In verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. If you haven't picked up on it yet, this is John the Baptist, right? This is what Angel is telling Zechariah. They're going to give birth to a son. They're going to name him John, and this is who we would come to be known to know as John the Baptist. This is really good news. In a lot of ways, good news for him personally, obviously, because he's saying you're going to have a child, but good news for the people of Israel because now the time's come, right? This plan of salvation is now in motion, at least from the Israelite standpoint, it's always been in motion since Genesis 1. We know that. But from an Israelite's perspective, 400 years of silence, nothing from God, and then he gets this message from the angel, and this is what starts everything up again. And it seemingly comes out of nowhere. How does Zechariah, Zechariah respond? Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Eh, wrong answer. For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, he says, the question he asks is, how should I know this. This is not how you respond to an angel with his message from God. Basically what he's saying is, I really need more. Like, I get that this is a promise from God, but can you give me a little bit more so I can believe you? That's really what he is saying here. And this is different than Mary. We looked at Mary's conversation with the angel last week. It's different from Mary because Mary was, in a sense, she believed, but she was like, this seems weird. How's this going to happen? Right? Which is a pretty natural question for Mary to ask. But Zechariah starts with the, I, I don't even know if this can happen. 
Now, how is this going to happen? Not, not even how, it's what. Like, tell me, I don't, I don't believe you. And so he gets a rebuke. He gets punished. He has consequences for this. But notice in this passage, it is not just a rebuke. If you look closely, still in verse 20, he says, You will be silent and unable to speak until when? The day that these things take place. So they're still going to take place. He's not taking this promise away from him. He's not punishing him to the point that he's going to change what God has told him to say to him. But he's, he is punishing him until these things have been fulfilled in their time, verse 20 says. Okay? So there's still grace. There's still mercy. Right? There's still, he has shown Zechariah, the angel, has a lot of grace in this moment by still allowing him to be the father of the forerunner, John the Baptist. But it doesn't come without consequence. He gets both rebuke and grace. Oftentimes when God punishes us, when we get rebuked from God, it's the same way. We, we more than likely deserved worse, but God gave us less than we deserved. And you can, looking back at this, you could almost see this less of a punishment and maybe more of a gift from God. Well, Zechariah probably had some things to think about. Zechariah probably has some things to deal with in his heart as a result of this news and everything that was going to come upon him. So he got to be silent. He was probably in solitude a lot because more than likely he was also deaf as well. He was unable to speak and he was deaf, most commentators think. I think sometimes God has to quiet us so we can hear him. Sometimes we have to be still so that we can see God move. This is, I'm sure, as Zechariah is reflecting back on this time when he was silent, this is probably what he is thinking, he's, he's looking at. And maybe, maybe we need to be quicker to impose more silence and solitude on our own lives so we can hear God move. Maybe if you're doubting in an area or you're listening to the chatter all around you and it's causing you to doubt the goodness of God, maybe you need to take a step back. Maybe you need to be silent. Maybe you need to not talk and just listen to God. Look at verse 21. And the people were waiting. Remember, there are people outside the temple because this is a part of a, a big ceremony. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they had realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So imagine the scene, right? He comes out, and he can't talk. So how is he going to tell them what's happened? This is a giant thing that has just happened to Zechariah. They didn't have a pen and sticky notes laying around this time, right? He has nothing to write with, right? So he just starts doing charades, right? Breaks out a game of fishbowl and just starts to, to try to act this out, right? And you can imagine this scene. Like, how are you going to explain an angel in charades, right? How do you do that? And talking about, like, now you're going to have, uh, you, you and your wife are going to have a baby, and he's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Like, that's a lot to try to act out in this game of charades. But he tries, right? And then he, he, they, he goes home. So this time in the temple is in it, he goes home. And I think one lesson for us is that in this moment, like, we, in, until we're silent, we should speak about who Jesus is. We should speak about and share with people the things we've heard from God, whether it's our family, our community, uh, people who don't know Jesus, right? We should communicate with our mouths why we can speak the truth about Jesus. Because Zechariah, like, he, he was forced to keep silent, but he couldn't keep silent in the sense of communication that he still had to share what happened in the temple. 
Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And she's feeling the healing. She's feeling the good news that not only is she going to get the experience having a child, she's also going to kind of be able to go back into society and be seen not as someone who is a stigma or someone on the side. And during this time, it bounces kind of back and forth. Luke does from Mary to Elizabeth, Mary to Elizabeth. And so he shares, the, 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 the angel goes to um, Mary, shares the news with her. And then in verse 41, we see, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So the, the ladies are getting together, probably cousins, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So Mary has her visitation from Gabriel, and when he gives her the good news about Jesus' birth, she runs to her cousin, Elizabeth, to share this news. And when John, John the Baptist, um, in uh, Elizabeth's womb, leaps when he gets near Jesus, right? It, it takes a little reading into, but it's interesting that John the Baptist is already responding to the person of Jesus as Mary comes into the room, Right? And we'll talk about this more next month, but verses 41 and 42 show a lot of activity going on in the womb. And I would say for the, the, the pro-life cause and what we believe about life and the unborn, like this is a really strong passage to show that there's a lot going on. The filling of the Holy Spirit with uh, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in this passage. Like there are things going on in the womb here that kind of point to life happening in the womb, Okay. Then Luke shifts, Luke shifts back to the birth of John the Baptist. And when he is born, neighbors and relatives want them to name him Zachariah after his dad, um, which was a reasonable request, right? Like, hey, you should name him after dad. Seems like a reasonable thing to ask. And they ask Elizabeth. She says no. And then they, ask, they turn to Zachariah and ask him, and he's still mute at this point. Um, and all he writes, now he has a pen and some papyra or whatever they wrote on, right? Like he writes down, uh, not even a no, all he writes is, his name is John. He's learned his lesson, right? He didn't even give his relatives a no, that's not going to be his name. It's like, his name is John. Gabriel, I remember you, I don't want you to come back and visit me right now and make me mute. His name is John. Final. God opened his mouth, and the people even pick up on this name. Right? The people around them, it says, the question they ask is, what will this child be? So the name changed, not Zechariah, John. The circumstances, they're like, this, this is special. Like, this baby is special. Now, the song. And before we go into the song kind of, and see the purpose of it, can you imagine how proud Zechariah is right now? Like, those of you who have um, held ba your baby for the first time, uh, moms, dads, especially maybe your first one, Right? Like, he's, he's waited so long for this. He's waited so long for this, and now he has, John is born, and he's proud, a proud daddy. But that's just like having a normal, like, baby, right? Then you think about who this child's going to become. If you were told your child, before he was born, was going to become the forerunner for the Messiah, and this man's a priest, right? He's, a pre he's in the priesthood. How proud and how overflowing is he with joy and hope and all the things now. And he's had some time to think about it because he was kind of had those consequences of being mute and probably deaf. 
And then he comes and he writes this song or this prophecy. And note in this, this, this song, it, it's going to, well, we'll just read verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit now. These are special fillings of the Spirit. This is before Pentecost. These are special fillings of the Spirit so he could actually uh, write these words. And notice that he, um, he's a priest. He knows his Old Testament very well. If you really dig into the language and the words and the symbolism in this song, it all can be traced back to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and, and, the, and the promises and the prophecies found there. And the, so there's 12 verses in this song. Um, the first eight verses, he worships God. So let's look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, traditionally, this is called the Benedictus, this song, uh, because it starts with blessed. It starts with blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For, why? He has visited and redeemed his people. It's a great summary of the gospel, right? He has incarnated himself. He's, in, he's visited his people, and he's redeemed them. He, his work is what made a way for salvation. The promised time of salvation has begun. And you can see salvation language through this whole thing. Like, Zechariah has experienced this in, over the last several months. When we experience salvation, we worship. And we believe. And we're, we worship because we realize God's promises are true. And he uses interesting word horn. I think this is an interesting word. because it's a, it's a word that's usually associated in the Old Testament with war. And it probably came from the fact that the animals in this area of the world, that the powerful ones had horns. And so it was, it, was a sign, it was a sign of power and might, and it was often used when a king and an army was going into battle. And he says he has, he has raised up a horn, not of warfare, but of salvation. His warfare is salvation. The, the thing he brings, what he's powerful in, is saving sinful and broken people. Verse 70 begins to get into to, to old covenant language here. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. If you look there at verse 74, um, we've been delivered, right? right? We've been delivered from who? The hand of our enemies. And our greatest enemy as human beings is sin. Sin in the world, but also sin inside of us. That is the greatest enemy that we've been delivered from. And then as a response to being saved, it says at the, end, at the second half of verse 74, we might serve him. So serving comes out of our salvation, and we do that in three ways. Without fear, in holiness, and in righteousness before him all of our days, for the rest of our lives. For as, for as, God, for as long as God gives us breath, this is how we, 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 we live. We're servants based off of us being saved. So that is the purpose of our salvation, uh, Zechariah is saying, saying here. That's the first eight verses. The next four verses, he turns and speaks directly to John, his son. Verse 76 and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before... And imagine him speaking over his baby boy right now. Just imagine that. He's saying this over his boy. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord, 
for the Messiah, that's Jesus, to prepare his ways. He's, 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 like a, he's like the best man in a wedding, right? Or the bestest mensch, if you're a German beet farmer and an office fan, right? Like, he, he, is, he is the best man here, right? He is the one who wants to make sure that Jesus and his bride, the church, get married. He wants to stay out of the way. He wants to stay out of the way. The spotlight isn't on him. He's just the forerunner. He's the one who is shining the spotlight on the Messiah, Jesus. Remember how John the Baptist dressed and what people thought of him? He was a weird dude. Lived out in the, lived out in the, in the sticks. It just, he, he dressed funny. He, he ate bugs. Like he, he was weird. He was odd because he could care less what people thought of him. The only thing he cared about was that people knew about Jesus. And they knew and they were preparing themselves for the coming of the Messiah. He had... He had a beautiful one-track mind that all of us should be inspired by and be a model of, to care less about what people think of us and care more about the person we serve. And he is serving Jesus. Just really cool, and imagine Zechariah just saying this over him and how proud Zechariah is. What does he do? Verse 77, part of his, his activity or ministry is to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Why was it important? Because they needed to know, right? They didn't, they didn't know the gospel, the people. They had shades and different parts of the gospel from their past, at least the Jews did. But they were expecting, if you remember, the way the, the disciples would react to Jesus, they expected a political Messiah. They expected a king like the kings of old in the Old Testament to come, have political and earthly power, to overthrow the big bad Romans because they were bullies and they wanted to have their own kingdom and live. But John's going to tell him, no, 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 that's not, that's not the kind of Messiah this is. Eventually, he will have victory, but not in this part of the story. He's going to die. He's going to serve. He's going to, uh, he was going to forgive sin. He's going to be the head of God's people called the church. This is how he's going to reign. This is how he's going to display his power. This is John's message. And our jobs aren't too much different, right? We are called as people who've experienced God's love, experienced God's grace. We are called to be people who speak about Jesus, who love Jesus, who follow Jesus in all areas of our lives and make him Lord in all areas of our lives. We don't get to be forerunners, right? That, there was only one person who had the job for that. That's John. But now on the backside of what all the Jesus' work, we're witnesses, we're a part of the cloud of witnesses, the people who have witnessed and know the good news and the gospel. We're ambassadors, the scripture tells us. We're children that can't get enough of talking about our, our heavenly father who has rescued us, who has saved us, who has brought us into a relationship with him. Verse 78, let's keep going. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah breaks out some poetry here. I love this line, tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Zechariah is acknowledging here that this has been a people in a place in spiritual darkness. They haven't heard from God in 400 years. They're being oppressed by the political power of the day. Their, their, their feelings of hopelessness, they're despondent, they're depressed. They need light. They've been living in darkness. And he said there's a tender mercy of God where the, by the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Those of, those of you who've, who've been awake at sunrise, just how you start to see that light come 
You start to see the sun come up over the horizon. This is the imagery that he wants us to feel and see. God's compassion on them in this moment to, to show up, to bring light to the darkness. And we're all, we all have these parts of our lives that are still in darkness, right? That we're still growing and we're still trying to, trying to grow into Christ's likeness. We see darkness all around us in this world. Maybe some of you here would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And I would say you're still living in spiritual darkness if that describes you. And this light is for you too. This light is for everybody who would call on his name, that would believe in his name, that would repent. That was John's message. Really two things, repent and believe in the gospel. This was John's message to the people. Get ready. He's coming. And this is the message for us. And for those of us who are in Christ, this is such good news. This is such good news. And it was good news to the people then. We see this beautiful darkness and light imagery here. And then in verse 80, Luke says, this is kind of after the song, he says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So he grew up in the wilderness. Again, he had a one-track purpose that God had set his sight on him before he was born. And he lived that purpose. And we don't see him again until he pops up as the, the crazy preacher in the wilderness calling people to repent and believe. Uh, Audrey West, a Moravian professor and theologian, says this. It is the hope of salvation for all people, Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders, rich and poor, blind and lame, tax collectors and sinners, women and men, old and young, fishermen and farmers, Samaritans and soldiers, lepers and lawyers, and many others. As Zechariah waits, as we all wait for the unfolding of God's purposes in John, John the Baptist, we look ahead to the one who is more powerful than he, the one who is to come, whose own name portends that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is what we wait for. This is what we long for. This is what John the Baptist was the forerunner, forerunner of. Now, let's go back to Zechariah and think, how does this connect with us? Okay. Zechariah, Zechariah's song could be very much ours. I know there are probably everyone in this room has failed, um, have, have, have expectations that have not been met. We've put our hope in something, and for whatever reason, it has not happened, and therefore, maybe we have feelings of hopelessness. Um, those, these expectations have not been met. We can become cynical towards God. We can become cynical towards everything. We can distract ourselves with all sorts of other things this time of year if we're doubting, if we're depressed, if we feel hopeless in this moment. But like Zechariah did, we need to lean into this waiting. He didn't cease to keep praying, even when he's on the job, and he's praying to God about his situation, his predicament. And then we see the faint light on the horizon. We've seen that. We've seen Jesus, the dawn coming. Jesus has come. He's died. He lives again. The dawn has come. It's here, but it hasn't come in its fullness. And we find ourselves in this odd, uh, between Advent already but not yet time. We already know the kingdom has come. Not in fullness, but it's come in Jesus. But we wait for the second Advent for when he comes back and he'll remove all tears, all pain, all suffering, all sin. And he'll put an end to it one day. And that is what we long for. So when we don't get what we want, and there's a lot of things that I wish that I had that I don't have. I mean, all of us can probably, as we meditate and think about that, we're sad. We lament because we don't have what we want. And God meets us there. He knows that. He knows. But for whatever reason, he hasn't given us those things. But we know one thing he has given us. 
He's given us Jesus. And Jesus has come. The dawn has already arrived. But it still is shining light on areas. There's still areas of our lives that remain in darkness. There are areas of our world that remain in darkness. And that light continues to go forth until either we pass away or Jesus comes back. And that is what we are waiting for. And so this is how we live our lives as disciples, right? To wait. To wait, just like they were waiting. And we need to, in this season of Advent, I want us to put ourselves, kind of in, feel that tension of waiting. I think that waiting will produce longing. And it will produce a, a focus on what really matters, what, the, what our true hope is. Waiting for Jesus to arrive and to come back. And Advent time should be an anticipatory time. It should be a time that we long and we wait, but I know it can be frustrating and sometimes discouraging. And like Zechariah, hopefully this gives you comfort because we doubt. We get angry. We say, probably, we think we say dumb things to God. And we probably do. I say dumb things to God. I get angry at him, him probably when I shouldn't get angry with him. But he still shows me grace. He still showed Zechariah grace. And we need to lean in like Zechariah did. But if we have this kind of hope, I think we can lean in to suffering when we don't get what we want, when we suffer, when life doesn't turn out like we want it to. We can trust and bank on the hope that we have in the salvation of Jesus and his future return. Why? Because he's alive now based on the resurrection. That's already happened, and that is good news that we're living after the resurrection. That empowers us. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us if you're a follower of Jesus, which gives us more tools as we wait. But I know that doesn't necessarily make it easier. One thing that I, I imagine this week is when Zechariah writes this song, obviously he's come full circle, right? He's learned a lot. He's a different man than he was just months ago when that angel appeared to him in the temple. We don't hear from Zechariah again after this. The, the, the scriptures are silent on him. But we do know what John did, right? John was faithful in his calling. Do you remember how John's life ended? He had a really short ministry. He was so faithful. He preached the gospel so fervently without fear, he was killed for it. King Herod arrested him, and he was executed under King Herod. He wanted to shut him up because he was stirring things up. He was leading people to Jesus. He was talking about this Messiah figure that King Herod was threatened by, so he wanted to just cut off the messenger, and he killed him. And I wonder if Zechariah was alive. We don't know when John the Baptist was. Again, he was up there in years when he had Zechariah. So there's a good chance that he had, he had died. But if he was alive, how would he have dealt with that? How would he have dealt with his son being murdered for his faith? Probably really sad. Losing a son, losing a daughter. Probably, probably a horrible experience for him. But that shimmer, that gleam of hope, knowing that Zachariah is going to see God one day face to face, and that John lived the life that God said on him to live, and he was faithful to that. And he lived that life out to the end, and it cost him his life. I'm sure there would be these, these sense of proud, the, 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 these feelings of, of pride well up inside of Zechariah, knowing, yeah, my son ran the race well. He ran the race well. So just because Zechariah had this moment of joy and hope doesn't mean things were gonna get, weren't going to get dark again for Zechariah. And same thing for us. This side of heaven, until we see Jesus, Life's probably going to be a roller coaster of ups and downs. But we always have this hope to cling to. Three quick things and we'll be done. Application here. Number one, wait. We wait. We, we need, this is, this is patience, right? This produces the fruit of the Spirit inside of us, right? We wait. 
but we wait expectantly. Because the greatest thing that will happen to us in our lives, I would say tied with becoming Christians, when Jesus returns or we pass away. And we wait for that. But there's an expectation as we wait for that. So I want us to lean into that and feel that during this time of year. Number two, we serve. Like the song said, because of what God has done in us, we are now servants. We are saved to serve. We're saved to serve without fear and in holiness and in righteousness. That's a great like, little checklist there just to think, am I serving in those ways? And lastly, we wait, we serve, and like Zachariah's son, John, we make Jesus' name known. We make Jesus' name known, and, and this time of year produces a lot of opportunity to do that. Like, there's a lot of talk of hope, and like, you know, there's just the themes of the gospel story are heightened during this time of year. So let's speak into those things. Let's look for opportunities. Maybe that's in our family, around um, our Advent process or our Advent traditions, whatever our family does, to speak into this, these ideas of hopelessness or sadness. But it may be with coworkers. It may be with people that you know, right? It may be for yourself and being, spending more time in silence and solitude, right? Let's speak the gospel into this world that desperately needs hope. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that in your providence and in, through Luke's writing that you've included this story about Zechariah. It's one of those times that we just, rare times that we just, this little window where we get to know him. These few events that happen in just a, within a year's time, Lord. And we, we see so much of ourselves in Zechariah. I know I do. And we know the importance of John the Baptist, that he's the forerunner. He's the model, really, for us to be ambassadors, to speak the truth, no matter what the cost and we're thankful that this is included in, this, in this, this, this birth of Jesus story, right? The birth narrative. The birth narrative of our Savior, Zechariah, has a major role to play, as does John the Baptist, as does Elizabeth. And we're thankful that you, um, in, your, in your divine providence, that you have included those in your word. I pray you would change us as a result of what we've seen and heard today in your word. And we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.